about why can I, why, how is it that I can be in the worst of situations and not be afraid? First thing, God is with you. Notice how he says, even in the valley, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now, the word for there, okay, very important. He's saying the reason I can say this is because of this, right? So even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Because what? Someone say it. Because what? You are with me, right? See, it's the presence of the shepherd that gives David confidence while walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But it's, it's, it's got to be more than that, though. It's got to be more than that. And this is something that I feel like I've talked about agnosium over the past few weeks. Because it's not simply that God is with you. It's not simply that God is with me. You see, David, in the first three verses of this chapter, what did he do? He gave an in-depth explanation of what God, who God is as his shepherd, right? That he is a protector, he is a provider, that he provides in this way, he provides in that way, right? We talked about this last week. So the rest of Psalm 23 needs to be viewed through the lens of the first three verses. Does that make sense? First three verses, this is who God is. He is my shepherd. He is my provider. Blah, 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 blah. Now, the rest of it is viewed through that lens. So the reason that God's presence is comforting to David is because of who God is. You see, as Christians, we don't find peace and comfort in the fact that God exists. We find peace and comfort in who God is. Right? See, and... I feel like I've used this analogy a lot. So some of you are like, yo, you said this like yesterday. Sorry. But it is what it is, right? I mean, if God is all powerful but not all good, that's not very comforting to me. If God is all good but he's not all powerful, then like kind of useless, right? But it's the combination of who he is plus the fact that he is with me. So a good little uh, mathematical equation for you, okay? The person of God plus the presence of God equals the peace of God. See, it's the person of God, who he is, plus the presence of God, that he is always with me, which equals the peace of God. See, if you take out the person of God, then the presence of God is not very comforting to you. If you take out the presence of God, then the person of God isn't very comforting to you. But it's who the shepherd is and knowing that the shepherd is always with you that brings peace no matter the situation. Good times, I know who my shepherd is. I know that he's always with me. Bad times, I know who my shepherd is and I know that he's always with me. And what that does is it allows you to have a peace that doesn't move up and down with your circumstances, but allows you to have a peace that is constant and steady just as much as your shepherd is. And if you struggle to have peace, if you struggle to stay in difficult situations and have joy and have confidence and have courage, probably the reason is this. You have forgotten that your shepherd is near and close, or you have forgotten who your shepherd is. We need to remind ourselves. It isn't simply that God is with me, but it's when I combine the truths of what I know of who he is, plus the fact that he is with me, then I can have peace in the midst of adversity. See, everything that we're going to look at tonight and the remaining part of this passage has to be viewed in light of who God is and that he is always with us. You have to see it that way. It's 
crucial for understanding the rest of this passage. So first reason that I should not fear is because God is always with you. God is always with me. Second reason. Why do I not fear while I'm in the valley of the shadow of death? Because my shepherd has led me there. See, we see that we, we've seen that our shepherd is our provider and that he leads and he guides us. That's in the verse that's in verses one through two, one, two and three. And up to this point, we've seen how our shepherd leads us to green pastures and still waters and how he restores our souls. But we must remember that if we are led by the shepherd, that oftentimes that it is the shepherd that leads us into valleys. See, remember, if God's provision is for our ultimate good and for his ultimate glory, then we must acknowledge his sovereignty in all situations, right? Even in the difficult seasons, the difficult times of life that could be, that probably are for our good and for his glory. Right? If our shepherd is the one that leads us and guides us, he doesn't only lead us to mountaintops. That often our shepherd will lead us to valleys. Romans 8, 28 and 29, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What that is saying is this, is that if you are a Christian, God has predestined events in your life to make you more like Jesus. God has predestined events in your life to make you more like Jesus. 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. James 1, verse 2. What does it say? Count in all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you, be, you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. You see, valleys develop character. Valleys develop trust. You see, we can't look at the green pastures and the mountaintops of our lives and say that God has led us there and he's provided there. And then at the same time, we say in the valley that we're here because God hasn't provided. Either God is a provider or he's not. Either God is your shepherd leading your steps or he is not. It's not that God is your shepherd one day and then he's not your shepherd the next day. Why? Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is always your shepherd. He's always leading you. See, we often say that God is in control. You hear that statement a lot, right? We say that God is in control. Kind of the theological term for that is that he is sovereign. God is sovereign. And we say that God is sovereign, God is in control, but our theology and our lifestyle would actually say otherwise. We would say that with our mouth, but we don't really believe it. Right? We say that God is in control, but he needs me to have enough faith. God is in control, but he needs me to do something so that he can act on his sovereignty. That's not sovereignty. You with me? If God is dependent on you for him to act on his sovereignty, that means he's not sovereign means he's not in control. If God, if God is dependent on you to do anything, then he's not sovereign. You are. Which is a dangerous thing to claim, right? To claim that God's not in control. He has to wait for me to let him. I heard a preacher yesterday. 
probably well-meaning. He's a you know, famous guy. But ultimately say that God can't work where there's unbelief. That's not true. That's not true. If that's the case, how was I saved? Didn't God have to overcome my unbelief to save me? When Saul was on his way to Damascus and he's on his way to go murder Christians. And Jesus knocked him off of his horse. Did Jesus have to wait for Saul to believe in him before he would do that? No. God is in control on the mountaintops and God is in control in the valleys. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction, hear that, momentary affliction, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And God is leading us in places for our good and for his glory. God has led you to the valley. I know it may be hard, but when you're in that difficult season, God has led you there. And there is reasons for it. God has led you to the valley. It's hard, maybe it's hard to understand because he loves you. Because he loves you. Now, maybe you're asking, well, Mike, what if I'm in the valley because of my own sin? What if I'm in the valley because of my own choices? What if it's not that God wants me to be in the valley, but I willingly chose to go to the valley? What happens then? Did God lead me in the valley, or am I in the valley because of my sin? And the answer is yes. Yes. You see, in order to keep you from continuing on in your sin, God will often allow your sin to lead you to the valley for the purpose of leading you to repentance. Does that make sense? This kind of goes. This is kind of explained in First Corinthians chapter six, where basically Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he tells them basically there's an instance of an individual who is living in open, unrepentant, disgusting sexual sin, and basically like they've confronted this individual, blah blah blah, and this person is just refusing to do anything about the sin. And basically, what Paul tells them to do, you know, I'm just, instead of just quoting it or trying to just explain it from memory, I'll just read it. That's a good idea. 1 Corinthians, do, 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 do. You guys with me? You awake? Good to know. All right. Actually, chapter 5. 1 Corinthians, chapter 5. All right, hold on. Okay, verse 3. For though I am absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And, ad- and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has done such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. Do you hear that? What does that mean? To hand someone over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that their soul might be saved. What that means is this, is that oftentimes... God will allow Satan to attack an individual to the point of bringing them to nothing with the purpose of bringing them to repentance. 
to hand over to Satan, not so that they can be tortured forever, but to be handed over to Satan for their ultimate good. What? To be led into the valley for their ultimate good and for God's ultimate glory. Everything in your life, even the mountaintops, are for your good and for his glory. For his, for your good, for his glory. Repeat that over and over again. Everything that you're going through is for your, is for your good, his glory. You see, the beauty of the shepherd is this, that even if the valley is for disciplinary reasons, ultimately so that it will lead you to repentance, here's the thing. The valley is not forever, and the valley is for your good. The valley's not forever. You know, that idea of hand over to Satan, that phrase is used one other time in the Bible. Do you know where it is? Job. When it says that he hand Job over to Satan. Do you know what the end of Job ends with? It ends with Job repenting, being made right with God, and everything that was taken from him being restored. That's the purpose of the valley. The purpose of the valley is to draw you closer to your shepherd. Right? So we see, I do not fear because God is with me. Right, the shepherd is with me. The shepherd, and then I, I do not fear because the shepherd has led me to the valley. And the third thing, the valley is not the final destination. The valley is not the destination. Notice what Paul, what, what sorry, what David says here. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You see, notice that David doesn't say that I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, or I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, or I stand and or sit or I lay down in the valley of the shadow of death. He says, even though I walk through it. See, the valley is not something that is meant, see, sorry, the valley is meant to be walked through, not stood in. The valley is meant to be temporary. The valley is temporary. These difficult seasons of life are temporary, and they may feel like they're going on forever and forever, but they're meant to be walked through, not stood in. And it's at this point that some people would like to throw some big Christian buzzwords at you. Right? Because the valley is temporary, you're waiting on what? Breakthrough. If I hear one more person vaguely say breakthrough, I'm going to lose my mind. Right? The valley is temporary, so you need to trust God for your breakthrough. What does that mean? Have you ever had someone explain what that means? Nope. But it just sounds really good. and It gets people super hyped so that we can sing worship songs really loud. Waiting on breakthrough. Let's be real. Scripture promises that all suffering for the Christian is temporary. All suffering for the Christian is temporary. My mom's epilepsy is temporary. My uncle's cancer is temporary. My father's heart issues are temporary. My family's history of hereditary kidney disease is temporary. It will be healed. The question is, is it healed in this life? Or is it healed through death? Is it healed now? Or will it be healed when I'm in eternity with him? You see, if your hope is in this life, yeah, I would be depressed too. I'd be depressed in the valley too. 
You see, if you or I die in the valley, it doesn't mean that God is not faithful and that he hasn't provided. If we die in the valley, it means we're out of the valley. As Christians, we have a hope that is beyond this life. Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Man, we got so many people who profess to be Christians, and by professing to be Christians, they are proclaiming that they have a hope and a faith and a joy that is in a life after death, but they act like it doesn't exist. Why? Because we're willing to sell our soul for four years of high school. Those of you who are seniors, you have a couple months left. Enjoy it. And I hate to break this to you, but for many people, you're going to graduate in a couple months and realize that all these things you sold yourself for were worthless. Were worthless. You know how many people I see from high school on a regular basis? None. Zero. Zero. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. And some of you are like, well, you're like, you're, you, you graduated 10 years ago, so of course they're all dead now because you're old. <laughs> no. You know how many people I saw after graduating within a year? Two. I went to Seminole High School. There's 4,000 students in Seminole High School. You know how many, stu- how many of them I saw on a regular basis after I graduated? Two of them, my friends that we intentionally stayed in contact with. Here's the thing. The stuff that you're selling yourself for, it does not last. It doesn't last. And as Christians, we have a hope that is beyond this life. Act like it. I don't know. I I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to say this like, yo, act like it. Maybe the reason that so many people want nothing to do with Christianity is because we profess a hope that we never display. We profess a hope that we never display. If you truly believe that when you die, you will be with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in his fullness for eternity, shouldn't that change something about you? Shouldn't it? Something, something, something. Something. (laughs) The valley is not the end of the road. Why? Because the ultimate provision for the Christian was provided by Jesus on the cross. That's where our hope lies. That our provider has provided for us. Now, he provides in eternity, and he ultimately provided on the cross 2,000 years ago. Which leads me to our last reason that we do not fear. I'm planning on doing groups tonight, but we're not going to have time. Sorry. I didn't think I was going to have a lot to say because I've been at a conference all day yesterday and pretty much all day today. So I had like an hour and a half to write a sermon. And hey, look at that. Uh, <laughs> the fourth reason we do not fear is because death, it, it because in the valley, shadow, in the valley of the shadow of death, is because it's only a shadow. It's only a shadow. 
Notice how David does not say that it's, he, he, he says he, it, it isn't the valley of death. It's the valley of the shadow of death. You see, as a Christian, the death that we face is only a shadow. It's only a shadow. Remember, this psalm is meant to be read with an understanding of verses 1 through 3. Remember that. I, I said that earlier. Remember that? Yeah, I remember. I hope you do. Right? Verses 1 through 3. So, like, verses 1 through 3 is the lens through which we understand this. Well, if we're going to take a gospel approach to verses 1 through 3, that, that our shepherd is our provider, what's the ultimate provision that we've been given? Jesus, right? Jesus was the ultimate provision. His death on the cross, making us right with God, making it to where we could be forgiven of our sins, made right with God, is the ultimate provision that you could ever ask for. So if we view the rest of this uh, chapter through the gospel, or if you just view every hilltop, every valley, every moment of your life through the lens of the gospel, it changes the way you look at it. You see, because the good shepherd... John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for my sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down willingly. Because the good shepherd has provided himself as payment, then every circumstance and situation that I face, I do so with my eyes fixed on Jesus. Hebrews 12, what does he say? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us what? Run the race that is marked before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning, despising its shame, and sits now at the right hand of the Father. Every situation in our life, we, do, we go through it with our eyes fixed on Jesus. When my mom had her first seizure in that movie theater, and I thought that my mom had died before my very eyes, eyes rolled back, blood coming out of her mouth, unresponsive. What do you do? What do you do? See, the death that we experience as Christians is but a shadow a shadow. Romans 14, 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We understand that a shadow is not a tangible thing, right? So like, here. Yeah, I, 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 we, if, are we recording for the podcast? No, oh, okay, then I won't turn the microphone off. All right. All right. Okay, well, you guys see that light, right? Okay, you see like the shadow on the wall right there? Does that shadow, can I see, see, the, see the chair? Can I pick that chair up with my shadow? Can I? I can try really hard though, right? I can like <laughs> do whatever I can, right? It doesn't work, why? Because the shadow isn't tangible. However, the shadow, it's a sha the shadow is cast by something that is tangible. If I went over there with my hand, I could pick it up, right? But the shadow of my hand does nothing. So one can rightly say that we face only the shadow of death because Jesus took the full reality of death in our place. Please hear me, because this idea that the full reality of sin and death was faced by Jesus and we face only but a shadow, that in the moment that our last breath leaves our body, that we wake up in the presence of God in glory forever and ever. Man, what an amazing promise and hope that is. 
And that confidence, that comfort, that hope is what has fueled Christians for 2,000 years. Especially as they have gone to die. There's a story, you probably have heard it. I think I shared it maybe like two years ago. About a man named Polycarp. It's a very interesting name. Don't name your kid that. Um, maybe you can, I don't care. But I'm not naming my kid Polycarp. Just I think of a fish every time I think of it. Because carp or fish, anyway. <laughs> You're like, I don't care, that's fine. Polycarp, he was the, the, the bishop, he was the pastor, the leader of the church in an, a town called Smyrna. And Smyrna was known for its persecution of Christians. About 160 A.D., Polycarp was arrested. And he was sentenced to death because of his faith in Jesus and because he refused to renounce his faith in Jesus and he refused to worship Caesar. You see, the Romans were fine if you worshipped other gods, but as long as you worshipped Caesar as well. And Christians, interesting note, Christians in the first century were actually called atheists. I don't know if you knew that. The reason is, is because Christians renounced all other gods but Jesus. Only Jesus is God. So, in the first century, Christians were called atheists. Which is going to make sense in just a second. Because I'm about to read you a story. This is, this is not, not a story. This is a real event. This is a real event. Okay, you can look it up. Polycarp. Cool guy. Okay, you can look it up. Polycarp was being, as Polycarp was being, this is a direct excerpt from the martyrdom of Polycarp, okay? This is a historical account. As Polycarp was being taken into the arena, a voice came to him from heaven, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. No one saw who had spoken, but our brothers who were there heard the voice. And when the crowd heard that Polycarp had been captured, there was an uproar. The proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On, and by the way, Polycarp at this point was about 86 years old. At least, he was at least 86 years old. He's an old man. On hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him to apostatize. That means to reject Jesus. Saying, have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, down with the atheists. Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in the stadium, and gesturing towards them, he said, down with the atheists. Swear, urged the proconsul, reproach Christ, and I will set you free. Put yourself in this man's shoes. Reproach Christ, and I will let you live. Polycarp said this. He said, 86 years have I served him. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Proconsul replied, they said, he said, I have wild animals here. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. This is a true historical account. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Polycarp replied, call them. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. And this is one of the most baller responses I've ever read in my entire life. It says, you threaten me with a fire which burns for an hour and then is extinguished. 
But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. That is a baller right there, okay? But honestly, it's not. You know, I've heard this statement that there are no great men of God, only weak, pitiful men of a great and merciful God. See, it's not Polycarp that was awesome in that moment, but it was the sufficiency of his shepherd. The story continues, and ultimately what they do is they, they tie him up. They, they try to nail him. They, they go to nail him to a stake, and he tells them, hey, I'm not going anywhere. You don't need to do that. So they just tie his hands and his feet, and they light him on fire. And as the account goes, he's not being consumed by the fire the way that they would like him to be. So ultimately, they stab him, and that is how he dies. And here's the question I have for you. What does this, where does that boldness come from? To look in the face of thousands of people and say, look, you threaten me with, with a shadow, you have no idea about the real thing. You have no idea. Where does that boldness come from? It comes from knowing that your shepherd is your provider and that the death that you face is but a shadow. It comes from the confidence that Jesus faced the reality of death so that you wouldn't have to. And here's the thing, guys. If, some, if you are in this room and you have not placed your faith in Jesus, if you have not confessed your sins, believed in the fact that Jesus died the death that you deserve, that he lived the life that you couldn't live, that you're not made right with God by your church attendance or by the things that you do for him, but you're made right with God based on what Jesus has done for you and not of your own good works. If you have not come to that realization, if you have not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, here's the thing. There is no shadow waiting for you. And not trying to scare anybody into heaven. But it's the real thing. Why? Because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But we've been justified by the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus, Jesus Christ is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Man, that is good news. He faced the reality of death so that I could only have to face the shadow. Charles Spurgeon has this quote. He says, death in its substance has been removed and only the shadow of it remains. Nobody is afraid of a shadow, for a shadow cannot stop a man's pathway even for a moment. The shadow of a dog cannot bite. The shadow of a sword cannot kill. The shadow of death cannot destroy us. Man. It's one thing to say this. It's another thing to believe it. It's another thing to believe it. And here's the thing. You're not saved by a great amount of faith. You're saved by a little bit of faith in a great God. So if you struggle with that, if you, if you occasionally doubt with that, here's the thing. You're not saved by how much you believe in Jesus. You're saved by placing the little bit of faith that you have, place that in Christ, and he is a great God. He can do what he, he, he he's fine. He's got it. He's got you. 
The rest of Psalm 23 goes on and kind of explains this a little bit more, but verse 6 says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Man, because of who my shepherd is and how he has provided for me, there's nothing that I face in this world that could cause me to fear because ultimately I know that I will be with him forever. I will dwell in the house of my Lord forever and ever and ever. There's a phrase in verse 5. It says, you, have, it says, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. God provides for you in such a way that your cup overflows. And here's the thing. What does your cup overflow to? Ultimately, your cup should overflow to those empty cups that are around you. Right? We've all been placed around a lot of empty cups. Maybe it's your friends or family that don't know Jesus. But this good news of the gospel does not stop with you. You probably, there's a quote, I can't remember who said it originally, but it's, what the gospel came to you on its way to someone else. And if you have this hope that we've talked about tonight, yo, share that with somebody, please. Share that with somebody. There's a, you guys know the, uh, this, I'm going to end with this, but you guys know the, the magic duo, Pen and Teller? You ever heard of them? All right, so Pen, does anyone know the first name of that dude? I, I, sh- I, I think I know this, but I can't remember his name. Uh, huh? That's fine. If you don't know, that's fine. I don't feel bad. All right, Pen. We're just going to go with Pen. That's his last name. All right. He is like a, re- he is a well-known atheist, okay? And not the first century atheist, okay? 21st century atheist, okay? Does not believe in God, anything like that. And basically, there's a video of him on YouTube. You, you can look it up, where he basically shares how someone came up to him and shared the gospel with him after one of his shows. And he said, he goes, honestly, like, I wasn't offended. I wasn't upset. It honestly meant a lot to me. And this is what he said. This is coming from an atheist. He goes, because if you really believe that there is a hell, that there are people that are headed there, how much do you have to hate them to not warn them about it? He goes, and, he, and again, he's saying, like, I don't believe it, but the fact that you believe it and you felt the need to share that with me means that you must care about me a little bit. He says, but how much do you have to hate someone to believe that there's a hell and not warn them about it? And I'll ask you the same thing. We're, we're heading into Easter. Right? This hope that we've talked about, Jesus died for us and he rose again three days later. We're coming to celebrate that in like two weeks. Man, what better time to share the gospel with somebody or to bring them to church than now? If you're in this room and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, don't leave this place without one, please. I would say, like, talk to me at Chick-fil-A. No, talk to me now. Because we're not guaranteed if we're going to make it to Chick-fil-A or not. Talk to me now. Talk to Kayla. Talk to Brock. Talk to Kobe. Talk to Haley. Talk to anybody. Talk to Mr. J if he's still here. Talk to Mikey D. Talk, like, we have people here, like, man, please. Does this make sense? I hope so. Okay, cool. Well, thank you guys for coming to my TED Talk. No. <laughs> um, uh, what we're going to do now is I'm going to pray. Uh, we were going to do groups, but 
it's 8.07. I don't want anybody to kill me for doing boobs. So, um, uh, if, you, if this is your first time here, a lot of us, we like to go to Chick-fil-A. Kind of circle. We go through the drive-thru and we circle our cars up in the Teen Challenge parking lot there. Hey, like, that's an awesome time to kind of talk to people and kind of get to know. Maybe kind of debrief this a little bit more if you want. So, uh, I'm going to pray. Then I'm going to let you guys go. Okay? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for today. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how our shepherd has provided for us. God, thank you that you lead us not only through the green pastures, but you also lead us through the valleys, ultimately for our ultimate good and for your ultimate glory. God, I thank you for the confidence that we can have, that you are always with us, that you lead us and you are sovereign, that the valley is not forever, and that the valley is just a shadow. God, thank you for that truth. I thank you that we can say, as David said, that surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God, we thank you for that hope. We ask you to remind us of that hope. Give us confidence and assurance and conviction in that hope so that we can take that hope and share it with everyone we know. Father, I thank you. I praise you. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, guys. Love, peace, and